Edmund had determined that it belonged entirely to Fanny to choose whether her situation with regard to Crawford should be mentioned between them or not, and that if she did not lead the way, it should never be touched on by him. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 35 to 39 of Mansfield Park. And, as has happened in the past, today we're joined by my partner Michael, who'll be talking about the Marines. Hello. But let's start with 100-word summaries. Okay, well, mine actually came in at slightly less than 100 words because I fairly quickly cut out all the extraneous stuff. So, Edmund tells Fanny that he supports her refusal of Henry, but also that he hopes and believes she will change her mind. He and Mary both dismiss Fanny's statements that she can't think well of Henry. William comes for another visit, and Sir Thomas decides that when he leaves, Fanny will go with him to spend time with her family. He believes this will make her realise what she's throwing away in Henry. Fanny is excited about going back to Portsmouth, but when she arrives, finds that it's not what she'd been hoping. And that was mine. Right. Well, mine looks as though it's much longer, but it's only really about five words longer. (laughs) Edmund finally discusses with Fanny her refusal of Henry and develops his own version of the affair. Fanny has a last visit to Mary and convinced she is still unworthy of Edmund, but will accept him. William returns and Sir Thomas, believing this may reconcile Fanny to Henry Crawford, sends her back with him for a two-month visit to Portsmouth. They arrive to find William's ship is preparing to sail. Fanny is increasingly shocked by the noise and squalor of her parents' household the obstreperous behaviour of the children and servants, and the lack of interest and attention paid to her. That's 103 words. Okay. Well, the first chapter is obviously the big scene between Edmund and Fanny, and I think you had some strong thoughts on that. Well, I have, yes. But it's more than anything, he just comes through as sort of condescending and pompous and patronising, worse than he's ever been before. Yeah. The second thing that came through was he is so sure of his understanding of psychology. He knows exactly what Fanny's like. He can explain that. He can explain Henry Crawford. He's so sure of that. Mm. And then finally... The thing that I thought was really interesting, now is it this the result of him just having been ordained? But he disagrees with Sir Thomas. He says to Fanny, you're perfectly right to refuse him if you're not in love with him. Mm. Whereas Sir Thomas's view had been, if you're not in love with him, you should try to be in love with him. Yeah, but Edmund does kind of also, because of his allegedly superior psychological understanding of Fanny, is still basically saying, well, yes, you're not in love with him, but of course you will be. Well, or if you try, you will be, yes. I guess what seems to me to happen is Fanny, with Sir Thomas and with Edmund, and then also with Mary, basically says two things. She says, first of all, from what I knew of Henry Crawford, I did not think he was serious, and how presumptuous would it have been for me to develop feelings for him when he didn't have anything for me, and you can't expect me to just suddenly have feelings like that. That's one of the things that I think is fantastic, that finally Fanny gets a chance to put her thoughts into words, and she does it so so elegantly. Yeah, It's completely logical, almost in terms of doing a proper logical proposition of it. It's very, very good. I just found that interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. 
One of the bits I really liked was her saying, Surely I was not to be teaching myself to like him only because he was taking what seemed very idle notice of me. Mm. And in a sense, it comes through that she probably felt insulted by Henry trying to make her fall in love with him like Mariah. Mm. But the other thing she says, and she says this in different degrees, she tries to say it to Sir Thomas, she says it more clearly to Edmund, and then she says it a little bit to Mary, which is the... I cannot approve of Henry's character. I don't approve of his principles. I don't like him. And everybody just dismisses that argument. They're not even listening to what she's saying. They buy completely into this narrative that it's so sudden you took me by surprise. And they just ignore the, and I do know him, I'm not stupid, and I don't like him. And they ignore that. And she gradually lets out a little bit more. You know, with Sir Thomas, she wasn't even prepared to say she doesn't have doubts about his temper but about his principles. Mm. But to Edmund, she starts explaining that it was the way he behaved to Mariah. Edmund's psychology comes in and says, you've got that wrong, we were all bad at that time. But to Fanny, with Edmund, she says, as a bystander, perhaps I saw more than you did. And to Mary, she says, and I love this line, I was quiet, but I was not blind. Yes. (laughs) But she basically says to Mary, I cannot think well of a man who sports with any woman's feelings. And yet Mary's still indulgent. And I think what it comes down to is that to Fanny, it's a deep-seated character flaw that's inexcusable and irredeemable. Whereas to Mary and to Edmund, it's just a fault and it can be corrected and his love for Fanny will correct it. I think for Mary it's much worse than than that. I think one is supposed to see this as evidence of her own poor character, that she genuinely doesn't think that there's anything wrong with him engaging in this kind of appalling behaviour. Well, she's she's whitewashed it to herself. Yes. Yes. He's her brother and she loves him and so she views him through rose-coloured glasses. Yes. And she minimises his faults. It gets me so angry to see them just dismissing what she's saying, dismissing her feelings. But I also do think because she puts up this initial good argument as to how can you expect me to be in love with him when it would be presumptuous, but that gives them the opportunity to just take that and ignore everything else. Edmund is just buying into this narrative when he says, I may be sorry, I may be surprised, though hardly that for you had not had time to attach yourself. Yeah, but it's his infantilising fanny there. But she herself does present this as part of the narrative. It's just that 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 she didn't have time, yes. And that's the one everyone latches onto and just ignores the fact that she still knows her own feelings. Well, I think that's where Edmund's superiority complex comes in, that he cannot conceive that she could possibly have a better insight. Oh, well, he's he's never... Henry Crawford. If you accept... Edmund's view of Henry Crawford that he's basically a good chap. Yes. Then Edmund's arguments as to why the marriage might work are actually valid and, in fact, not dissimilar, though inverse, yes. to Elizabeth and Darcy when he says, You have tastes in common, which is like Elizabeth and Darcy. And then he says, He is lively, you are serious, but so much the better. His spirits will support yours. Well, that fits with, you know, Elizabeth thinks that. Her liveliness would help make Darcy more alive, but also she would gain more stability from him. Yes. So if you accept the point of view, which Fanny doesn't, and which is ultimately Fanny has proven to be right, that he's morally upright, then Edmund's argument here isn't without validity. 
No, well, what they're interpreting all the time is her saying, I'm not in love with him. That's the reason. Yeah. They completely refuse, as you say, to see that she disapproves of his principles. Yeah. It's a fascinating chapter. Mm. But mm. I, I still have a feeling almost that Edmund's got a bit above himself. Yeah. Now he's an ordained clergyman. And it does still, it starts out kind of positive. Yeah, when he decides that he will talk to her. He, he does say if she did not need counsel, she must need the comfort of communication. That's nice. He's giving her a chance to talk to someone. And we do get this sense of how alone Fanny must feel, that everyone is down on her. And it yeah, when, they, when he first brings it up, it says that Fanny is at once agitated and dejected. Yes. Just imagine what she's going through at this time. It's horrible. Yes. Well, just this enormous pressure. Yeah. And she still can't quite say properly that she noticed him behaving so badly to Mariah. The first thing you get where Mary comes to visit Fanny is this business, if Mary is supposed to be so worldly and so mercenary, it simply doesn't come up that she has no sense of this is a bad match for Henry. Mm. She's totally supporting it. And this is really what I feel you're almost getting is a reversal of the Bertram sisters with Henry and Mary. Mm -hmm. Henry and Mary have been brought up with these worldly principles. They encounter people who have a different set of principles and they go overboard for them. Mm. Whereas the Bertram sisters are brought up with one set of principles. When they encounter people with other principles, they go for those (laughs) principles. Their attraction to these principles comes through. First of all, it came through completely when we saw when Henry was making his appeals to Fanny, describing her so beautifully. But then it comes through with that is actually Edmund's attraction for Mary. And she says it so sweetly. She says, you have all so much more heart among you than one finds in the world at large. You all give me a feeling of being able to trust and confide in you, which in common intercourse one knows nothing of. They were brought up with one set of principles and were attracted by another. Remember when Fanny is having that sort of analysis of what she feels about Mary Crawford afterwards. Mm. When you get this passage that says in their very last conversation, Miss Crawford, in spite of some amiable sensations and much personal kindness, had still been Miss Crawford, still shown a mind led astray and bewildered and without any suspicion of being so darkened, yet fancying itself light. And I think that's so sad. I think the Mary Crawford story is terribly sad. Mm. There are times when I think Fanny is unfair to Mary Crawford, but in that one I think she just nails her and it's so sad. Yes. But actually Jane Austen then goes on to suggest it mightn't have been so bad. You know, when she goes through and she's qualifying it and she says an older person might have known that if Mary had been married to somebody, she could well have picked yeah. up his principle. Yeah, you know, Fanny doesn't believe that Mary no, will ever... Ch- what Fanny believes is that Mary would simply make Edmund's life miserable, mm. which is what I believe Henry Crawford would have done if Fanny had married him. Yeah that he would have continually been outraging her principles and she would have tried to say something and then not been able to. Mm. My next question is why doesn't Edmund propose to Mary Crawford before she goes off to London? 
I don't know. Because I mean, the plot requires it. <laughs> I think you need it. It has to be because the plot needs it. Because this is Mary is at her most susceptible yeah. to Edmund is at this point. Yeah. Once she's gone to London, she starts thinking, oh, do I want to be in the country all the time? Yeah. I'm having such a good time. Yeah. I guess the next thing that happens is Sir Thomas deciding that Fanny will go back to Portsmouth. Yes. And this sort of does feed into what we were saying last week where he very much wants Fanny and Henry to get married. Yes. And he is being basically fairly unscrupulous in pretending he's being nice to Fanny and sending her back to Portsmouth, whereas in fact he just thinks this will teach her. Which is certainly true. (laughs) Which is absolutely true. But at the same time, it's still... He's not actively making her life a misery. No. He's not locking her up. He's not threatening her. He is still ultimately letting it be her decision. He's just trying to arrange circumstances in an allegedly positive way so that she makes the decision he wants her to make. I don't think his plan is for her to stay there forever until she agrees to marry Henry. No, it's not. She's going for two months. Yeah. But he certainly doesn't make any effort to get her back at the end. No. But But he's preoccupied with a lot of other things. But he's certainly not saying, you won't marry Henry, you're going back to your parents, I wash my hands. No, like being shut up, yes. Yeah. No, well, she thinks it's going to be nice. Yeah, Yeah, well, (laughs) we all know how that worked out. (laughs) One of the things that I don't remember much, but looking at it, we've got almost a whole chapter on how well Fanny and William get on on their journey back and the plans they have, Yeah, which is all this stuff about what young lieutenants thought. Yes, and I love the bit about him not being very charitable towards the first lieutenant. Yes. I have to say... I think he comes across as only slightly less horrible than the rest of the family. But he is a young man utterly caught up in his own affairs and and his dreams for himself. And so he's perfectly happy to say, well, the place is a complete disaster, but never mind, Fanny will fix it. It's not my problem. Yes, way to put the pressure on Fanny. And you you do have this picture of Fanny as... She's so excited about going home and thinking that the reason she didn't get on so well with her mother before must have been her fault. Which is her way of yeah. of starting everything. Is it my fault? That's yeah. her self-examination is yeah. always, how much of it was my fault? Yeah. Don't you think the wonderful comedy of that chapter of her arrival, where everybody, <laughs> every time anybody appears, they say, the thrush has gone out of harbour. I actually, I made a list. First Rebecca then Sam, then Mrs Price, then Mr Price, then Tom and Charles. The first thing they say when they see William is the thrush has gone out of harbour. Yes, and it's all they're thinking about. Yes. For some context, if the thrush sails without William aboard, he loses his lieutenancy. The thing is, though, it's done for comic effect that it's the first thing anybody says. (laughs) Tom and Charles walk in and... Sam is there, Mrs Price is there, Mr Price is there, and they think, oh, we have to tell William that the thrush has gone out of harbour. Like, he won't know. (laughs) But she does build up that picture of the Price household. Mm. What we get built up is Fanny's horror. I think that's the beauty of that yeah. of those chapters. It's not so much that she does a wonderful description of a lieutenant of Marines household. She does a wonderful description of all these blows that Fanny's getting yeah. to her happy expectations. Yeah. And yet she does it as a sort of comedy. Mm. Mm. 
I do like the fact that Fanny is sort of continually trying to correct herself in not being too judgmental too judgmental about the size of the rooms and the quality of the servants and the noise but she just finds it the noise in particular she finds it so oppressive yeah and the fact that she's really of no interest or importance to anybody and then she sort of is down on herself for thinking she should have been because of course everyone really just cares about William one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, you were almost surprised at how little anyone responded to Mrs. Bennet, at how polite they felt they had to be to Mrs. Bennet. Yeah. That, so that comes up here, where she disapproves so much of when Susan keeps trying to defend herself. Yeah. Particularly the way Susan responds to Betsy taking off with the knife. Yeah. And she, she's just so shocked mm. that Susan should speak to her mother in this way. Yeah. But then the second point, when we were talking about morals and manners and manners creating morals, and you were very strong on that view that Jane Austen believed that manners took you back to principles. Yeah. That manners and decorum leading to behaviour that reflects the principles. So you get people with principled behaviour. And that's exactly what that passage on Mansfield Park is about. Mm. At Mansfield, no sounds of contention, no raised voice, no abrupt bursts, no tread of violence was ever heard. All proceeded in a regular course of cheerful orderliness. Everybody had their due importance. Everybody's feelings were consulted. If tenderness could be ever supposed wanting, good sense and good breeding supplied its place. I mean, that's very much what you were saying a couple of sessions ago. Mm. This is the general background Mm. of that morals and manners idea. Mm. And here we've got Jane Austen absolutely encapsulating Mm. it. I've always thought that this chapter demonstrates that one of the principal privileges of rank was privacy yes and space Mm. that here we have this rather unsympathetic but definitely evocative presentation of what poverty was like all these people crammed together in this very confined space I think one thing to comment on, and I wasn't really fully aware of this until I read it more closely and looked at the notes in my book, is we get this picture of this noisy, uncomfortable, stressful household that she's living in. We also get a picture of Portsmouth. There's casual references to places like the thrush has gone out of harbour and it's going to Spithead and passing references to locations in Portsmouth. I've already done a Google map with locations of Mansfield Park, but I'm going to add in a lot more of the Portsmouth locations and probably link it to this episode. But the other thing I didn't realise is that the ships that are mentioned, other than the thrush, they're actually real ships. Oh, are they? You Um, looked them up, did you? uh, The person who did the notes for my Cambridge edition looked them up. All right. But no, apparently they were all ships her brothers had served on. So William asks, whereabouts does the thrush lay at Spithead near the Canopus? Well, her brother Francis served on the Canopus in 1805-6. It was a vessel of 80 guns, and it had once been the French ship Franklin that was captured at the Battle of the Nile in August 1798. Yes. Then when Mr Price comes in, he says that he thinks that the thrush will be having a cruise to the westward, and that will be with the elephant. So Jane Austen actually wrote to Francis, who was captain of the Elephant at the time, and asked if he would mind her mentioning it and other ships that they'd served on. 
The Elephant had 74 guns and took part in the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. Then when we find out where the thrush is at Spithead, she lays close to the Endymion between her and the Cleopatra just to eastward of the Sheer Hulk. A Sheer Hulk is a decommissioned ship mm. set up as a service vessel that you used when taking the masts in and out of another ship. Okay. Well, the Endymion and the Cleopatra were both Charles's ships. He served as midshipman and later as lieutenant on the Endymion, which is a frigate with 40 guns. And then he took command of the Cleopatra, which had 32 guns, in September 1810. So the presentation of Portsmouth is very grounded and the interest everyone has in the ships and the knowledge people have of where the ships are berthed at Spithead. And I wonder how much Jane Austen expected the readership to understand these references and how much she just put them in to make the it family <laughs> yeah for the family because she doesn't explain them they're just there but it does make it very grounded in reality yes well i can reveal to you based on southam's book on jane austen in the navy that her elder naval brother francis was scathing of errors in the first draft of this chapter and insisted <laughs> on her changing it okay <laughs> Well, that's kind of nice to know. Yeah. So she did consult her brothers somewhat in the writing of them. And then Francis was, he, he was criticising her use of naval terms uh, that she got certain very minor details wrong. It's always good to have an expert reviewer. Yes. The Portsmouth scenes are really good. And I think deliberately, but effectively such a contrast to the Mansfield scenes. Yes, Okay, so let's move on to favourite sentences. And I think Michael also had one he wanted to share. I do. And it relates to what we were talking about, the nature of the house in Portsmouth. And it's quite short, but I think it's quite evocative. But though she had seen all the members of the family, she had not yet heard all the noise they could make. <laughs> yeah, particularly the little boys. <laughs> Well, I'll read my long one now. This is the one where Edmund has just told Sir Thomas what he thinks about Fanny. Yeah. And it goes on. Edmund's account of Fanny's disposition, he could believe to be just, that is Sir Thomas. He supposed she had all these feelings, but he must consider it as very unfortunate that she had. For less willing than his son to trust to the future, he could not help fearing that if such very long allowances of time and habit were necessary for her, she might not have persuaded herself into receiving his addresses properly before the young man's inclination for paying them were over. Well, that actually feeds into mine, which is, I think, a chapter earlier. It's Sir Thomas thinking about Mr Crawford. He wished him to be a model of constancy and fancied the best means of affecting it would be by not trying him too long. Yes. <laughs> Which, of course, is also quite insightful about Henry Crawford that he's not actually going to be constant indefinitely. No. I think Jane Austen must have really liked this idea of Sir Thomas being concerned about Fanny changing her mind before Henry Crawford changes his mind yes. because she said it in these two different chapters in two slightly different ways. Yes. <laughs> In our original schedule, we'd been planning to talk about the Price family this week and then about Edmund in our next episode. But after reading the chapter with Edmund and Fanny this week, we've decided to turn that around because we feel we've got an awful lot we suddenly want to say about Edmund. 
There's a lot of people who love Fanny and who hate Fanny. There's a lot of people who love Henry and hate Henry, love Mary and hate Mary. I'm not sure there's many people out there who actually love Edmund. He's probably probably the least popular Jane Austen hero and some people certainly dislike him intensely. I sort of wonder, perhaps those people who thought the book was very moral, you know, there were all those opinions and everyone was saying how good the morality was. Perhaps some of them might like Edmund. But what I was going to start by saying is I can remember when I was still a student talking to some young man and saying, oh, I can't bear Edmund. And he said, oh, I don't mind Edmund. The one I can't bear is Fanny. (laughs) And now I can't remember what I didn't like about Edmund Mm. then because this time coming through, up till this point, I've been really feeling quite sympathetic with Edmund, the nice things he's done. Mm. And up to a point, this young man, you know, who is trying to come to terms with what he hopes is his vocation and all the sort of self-judging and the working out his principles Mm. up till this point. Yeah, okay. He's very nice in that first introduction when we see him as a schoolboy being nice to Fanny. That's lovely. Yeah. After that, even this time through, I still have reservations about him for a lot of it because he is still quite... I wouldn't go so far as to say he's mansplaining to Fanny, but certainly he spends a lot of the book telling Fanny that, oh, no, you don't really understand, but I understand, and this is the way things are. And so Fanny does increasingly particularly with Mary Crawford, but also when it comes to the Henry Mariah Julia thing. Fanny keeps on having to clamp down her opinions and not express them because Edmund has told her she's wrong. She doesn't actually change her opinions, but he is kind of muffling her. Oh, completely, yes. You just feel that she's simply not prepared to tell Edmund he's wrong. That's what it amounts to. Edmund says something and she starts to say you're wrong. If he says, no, I'm not wrong, that's it. She won't bring it up again, Mm. which is what happened with Mary Crawford at the beginning. You get the impression that he thinks he respects Fanny's opinions and wants her to express her opinions. And maybe that's happened up until where the book begins. But the evidence we see in the book when they're talking about characters... She can only express her opinions to him when they agree with his opinions. That's exactly what I was going to say. And perhaps he's been able to to maintain the illusion that he is interested in her opinion because until this point, she has always agreed with him. But, you know, we can also perhaps see that she may have then made sensible suggestions or extensions if he says something she might come up with a good example yeah he might say something and she will then refine it in another Mm. way yeah because she's quite smart yeah it's quite possible that up until this point they've had discussions that are not just him holding forth but because there's no disagreement he can listen to what she's saying and build on that and she builds on that and it's a conversation So I will openly say that I find him deeply unlikable. I find him unbelievably pompous and self-serving. Yeah, I can't feel that. No, even through the theatricals, I'm sort of sympathetic with him because he really is being torn in so many directions. He's falling in love with Mary. He wants to stop the theatricals. He's trying to watch his motives. Am I doing this because I want to sort of be with Mary or am I doing this because I think it's the right thing to do? Well, I guess that's one place where 
people do disagree because I know in talking of Jane Austen, they criticise him as saying when it comes to the play that he doesn't even have the courage of his convictions. And so the reason he agrees to do the play is because Mary. But yes, I do I agree. No, I, part of it is because of Mary. But the broad justification is that this will stop. It's harm minimisation. Yes. And I do think that's not just a justification for what he wants to do. I oh, think that's a real oh, motive. I must say, I don't. I think it's a completely Jesuitical argument that at the beginning he's just irrevocably opposed it. He sees it as a black and white issue and... When he starts to become enamoured with Mary, he suddenly finds reasons to change it. Well, what I feel is that with the theatricals, he feels the objection is to having theatricals, and particularly perhaps then that the play they've chosen. But his basic thing is they shouldn't be doing the theatricals. Once the theatricals have been brought into play, all he can do is try and moderate Tom. And he thinks that by agreeing to act, he's going to moderate Tom. And then he tells his father it didn't work. But he's also got this other thing of him feeling not that he doesn't want someone else to act with Mary, but he can still think of that. He justifies that as thinking... It will be so uncomfortable for Mary to bring someone else in, as well as it's the bad thing to bring mm. someone in. I agree with you that his position is theatricals are immoral in and of themselves. No, he doesn't think theatricals are immoral in and of themselves. He says Sir Thomas wouldn't want theatricals at Mansfield Park. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, so his position is that the theatricals are inappropriate and that the play they've chosen is immoral. Well, or again, inappropriate. I don't think it's worse than that. He just feels this isn't a play that could be filled by us, is Mm. what he says. Mm. It's not a play his father would want his daughters acting in. Mm. Well, I just think from his initial moral position, it is impossible to see him taking part in any way as anything other than self-serving and Jesuit. No, I I don't, because I do genuinely think it is harm minimisation and stopping them bringing in a complete outsider. Let's not go into the issue of they've only known the Crawfords for six weeks. Mm. Stopping bringing in a complete outsider, trying to control the expenditure, which he feels wrongly he can better do if he's involved rather than standing outside saying, you bad people. And I think he is deceiving himself in the extent to which protecting Mary is because he cares for Mary. There is the added thing. That's the theatricals. Mm. But the rest of the things that Fanny is noticing is him being blind. He is someone who is spectacularly unnoticing of what's happening around him. His own gloss goes on everything. Yeah. One of the things I'd put down to notice with Edmund was the way he's talking to Henry Crawford. It's when Henry Crawford is saying, this is what you should do with Thornton Lacey. Move this to here, move that to there. And he comes back, and I have two or three ideas also, said Edmund. And one of them is that very little of your plan for Thornton Lacey will ever be put in practice. (laughs) They're just sort of young men talking to one another Mm. as equals. Well, except... It's amusing, but it's also undeniably pompous. Yes, he's a bit pompous, and Henry is the opposite of pompous, but they can put up with one another. Mm. 
We've had the scene where we really dislike his behaviour to Fanny in the chapters we were looking at this week. There's also one really nice moment. Edmund's plans were affected by this Portsmouth journey, this absence of Fanny's. He too had a sacrifice to make to Mansfield Park as well as his aunt. He had intended about this time to be going to London, but he could not leave his father and mother just when everybody else of most importance to their comfort was leaving them. And with an effort, felt but not boasted of, he delayed for a week or two. It's him being conscientious, but also not making a big thing of it. He's just doing it. He probably hasn't even told Fanny. My reading of that is utterly different in that I read it as the author being ironic, that he's in his own mind turning this delay of a week into a great sacrifice. Yeah, I didn't read it as ironic. I just read it as straight. It was difficult, but he didn't tell anyone. I suppose Edmund has to not get Mary. Mm. because we've got the Cinderella's plot. Yeah. yeah, he has to marry Fanny because Fanny wants to marry him. Yes, and she's Cinderella. Yeah, and I know when I first read it, I always wanted Fanny to marry Edmund because Fanny wanted to marry Edmund, not because I had any particular care for Edmund myself. I have a feeling that was my feeling too, mm. that even though obviously I disliked Edmund very much at one yeah. point. <laughs> Look, I've never particularly liked Edmund. But that doesn't mean I ever wanted Fanny to marry someone else because Fanny liked Edmund. And what do you know about Fanny? You feel Edmund was great for her. I think in that chapter we saw today, Edmund was not being great for her. And I also do think in the bulk of the time period the book covers, he's not being great for her because he is actually, whereas up until where the Crawfords arrive, he has to a greater or lesser extent been bringing her out and encouraging her to talk. Throughout the course of the novel, he is shutting her down more. And that's not good for her, I don't think. And I would hope that after the novel finishes, and maybe after he's got this big kick to his own pride of having to accept that he just totally got Mary wrong. Would he ever admit he got Mary wrong? Well, basically, rightly or wrongly, and I believe that had he married Mary, basically they would have been happy. Or they would have sorted it out between yeah. them. There might have been tensions. Yeah. But yeah. but as it is, at the end of the book, he ends up just as judgmental towards Mary as Fanny is, and I think they are both being unfair. But if we allow for that, I think having had to question his own judgment of Mary, then maybe that would make him a little bit less I am always right when it comes to talking to Fanny, maybe. Possibly. But basically, Fanny has met five men of appropriate age of her class in her entire life, and he's (laughs) the least objectionable one. (laughs) Absolutely true what you're saying, but what I'm saying is that she made her commitment to Edmund when she probably only seen two. When she she was an abused child. (laughs) She imprinted on him. Yes. yes, but that's it, and that's the Cinderella plot. Yeah, which, mm. if anything, is the strongest plot mm. line going through the book. Yeah, but yeah, I would certainly put him at the bottom of my list of Austen heroes. Yes, but on the other hand, probably the one that one most wants the heroine to get. No, I no, would, not no, really. No, 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 not at all. It's Elizabeth. You'd be devastated if Elizabeth didn't get Darcy or if Anne didn't get Wentworth, provided the others got married to someone nice. Yes. You wouldn't be devastated. Of course, we know a lot of people would have rather Fanny married Henry. I'm not one of those people. No, no I absolutely do not want Fanny to have married Henry. I want her to have met a sixth man. <laughs> <laughs> Meet a nice young lieutenant in Portsmouth. Yes. Yeah. 
Just going back to all those opinions of family and friends that Jane Austen collected when she was writing Mansfield Park, a couple of them do mention Edmund. All right. So Edward Knight, which I think is her nephew Edward, not her brother Edward, Edmund objected to as cold and formal. All right. (laughs) So not pompous or opinionated or mansplaining, just cold and formal. But then Fanny Knight seems to think a bit more of Edmund because she could not think it natural that Edmund should be so much attached to a woman without principle like Mary Crawford or promote Fanny's marrying Henry. So she obviously has quite a high opinion of Edmund and feels that he's let himself down in that regard. Yes. Then Mr Benjamin Lefroy is angry with Edmund for not being in love with Fanny. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he was obviously all about Fanny because it says he was highly pleased with Fanny Price, angry with Edmund for not being in love with her and hating Mrs Norris for teasing her. He was the same as I was from the beginning where you sort of totally pro-Fanny. Yes. But then lastly, Mrs Portal, I don't actually know who she was, she admired the book very much but objected chiefly to Edmund's not being brought more forward. So she presumably liked Edmund and would have liked to see more of him. Or perhaps she feels you didn't see an attractive side to Mm. Edmund. Yeah. I think that could be what she meant, yes. Which is one thing we do have to accept, that there must be an attractive side to him. He's not good company in the way Tom is, but he must still have something to offer. We do see some not unpleasant conversations he has, often with Henry Crawford and often about the clergy in terms of talking about Thornton Lacey and then later on the discussion about sermons. He does in those come across as basically a intelligent, well-spoken, not unpleasant but not unpompous young man. So I guess what we're saying at the end about Edmund is I really think if you were making a popularity list of Jane Austen heroes, he would be probably right down the bottom, even below Edward Ferris. Edward Ferris, is this the lack of material to like Edward Ferris? Yeah. There's plenty of material for criticising and being irritated by Edmund. Mm. As Harriet said, I'm here to talk about the Royal Marines in Jane Austen's time. In doing so, my aim is to give some context to questions like Why was it seen as so shameful that Fanny's mother married a lieutenant of marines? And why are we expected to see William's choice of becoming a midshipman and subsequently a naval officer as a major step up the social ladder compared to following his father into the marines? Firstly, we need to recognise that the Marine Corps today, both British and American, are very different from those in the time of Nelson. Not only did they dramatically increase in size during the Second World War, but their role fundamentally changed. Because of the role of the Royal Marines in the invasion of Sicily and the D-Day landings, and the US Marines' central role in the island-hopping campaigns during the Pacific, most people today see Marines as elite military forces specialising in amphibious assault and special forces operations. However, the role of the Royal Marines in Jane Austen's time was rather less glamorous. All Royal Navy ships had a complement of Marines, although their number would depend on the size of the vessel. In smaller ships, they would be commanded by a lieutenant or even a sergeant, but in line-of-battle ships, they would have had a Marine captain with one or more lieutenants under him. In addition, the Marines also guarded Royal Navy facilities such as ports, shipyards and naval supply depots and they acted as prison guards at prisoner-of-war camps. 
The training and equipment of the Royal Marines was essentially the same as the British Army Line Infantry of the time. Their primary weapon was the Sea Service Musket, which was essentially a slightly sturdier version of the famous Brown Bess. And they were trained in formation drill and volley fire. Their uniforms were also close to those of the Army of the time, with red coats, powdered hair, and the infamous leather neck stock. Why was it infamous? It's essentially a leather collar which forces them to keep their oh. heads upright. A great thick leather collar. A dreadful yes. thing. Yeah, so it's emblematic of the focus on drill. Mm-hmm. And appearance. And, so. and appearance. So the Marines played a vital role in boarding actions and cutting out expeditions. In other words, seizing an enemy vessel at anchor by surprise assault. And they were also involved in amphibious assaults on enemy ports and fortifications. Although that kind of action was much less common and involved far fewer men in the Napoleonic period than would be the case in the 20th century. It's also worth pointing out that British naval vessels carried fewer marines and made less active use of them in ship-to-ship actions than their French counterparts. The French system of conscription meant that they had a much larger pool of recruits to draw on, and French captains would often fill their ships' fighting tops high on their ships' masts with marine sharpshooters, a practice which Nelson opposed because of the risk of setting fire to the ship's sails. Nelson himself was killed at Trafalgar by a bullet from one of these marine sharpshooters. However, the other, and in many ways the most important role of the Royal Marines, was to act as the ship's captain's armed deterrent against mutiny. We need to bear in mind, in the context of Jane Austen's time, that there had been two major naval mutinies at Spithead and the Nore in 1797, that showed that mutiny was always a distinct possibility. This is hardly surprising if one bears in mind the harsh discipline, poor food and pay, impressment and years at sea without leave imposed on seamen at the time. It's also perhaps unsurprising that the Marines' role as the captain's watchdog hardly endeared them to the rest of their shipmates. Added to this, Marines were rated as landsmen, the lowest of naval ratings, meaning they received the lowest rate of pay and share of prize money. They were also required to perform unskilled tasks such as hauling on ropes to raise sails or to run out the ship's guns under the supervision of able seamen. I think it says something about the naval mindset at the time that all non-seamen on naval vessels were officially known as idlers. (laughs) It's therefore hardly surprising that sailors tended to look down on lobsters, as they were known. Turning to officers, unlike their naval counterparts, marine officers were not required to undertake training or demonstrate any skills to obtain their commissions, nor did they need to purchase them as in the army. Commissions were obtained by application to the First Lord of the Admiralty. This did require some level of interest, but the standards were not very high. When it says that Sir Thomas had no interest that would help... I'm coming to that. Are you? So passing the the board involved only an examination of the candidate's age, family, education and height. Did naval officers have a height requirement? Not that I'm aware of. These examinations were not particularly scrupulous. After which they were sent to one of the three marine divisions at Chatham, Portsmouth or Plymouth. 
where they spent an entire few days ensuring they were physically capable of learning drill and handling a sword, after which they would be commissioned. At what rank did they enter? They passed as a lieutenant. That sort of means that if you get a commission in the Navy, you've either been at sea as a midshipman or you've done the naval training. Whereas yes. as a Marine, you haven't actually done, done anything. You haven't been to sea as well as only no. having a few days training. No, no, you haven't had a few days training. You've had a few days to ascertain that you're capable of undertaking basic training, which presumably you're going to learn on the job. <laughs> if gaining a commission was easy, promotion was based entirely on seniority and thus slow. On average, it took seven years to move from lieutenant to captain. So that's why in the novel it talks about how Sir Thomas has no ability to influence his career by interest because whereas in the Navy and the Army you can use interest to gain a promotion, in the Royal Marines it's entirely by seniority. So he's already done the only bit that interest helped with, which is get his lieutenancy. Yes. And after that a captain would have to die before he could be a captain or leave... Yes, but it's not the case that if the captain on his ship dies, he doesn't get to be that captain, which would be the case in the army. It's like the... But it's like there's a global list of ranking of all the lieutenants of marines in Great Britain. If this captain dies, then the next one on the list, even if they're currently on a ship in the West Indies. Yes, they get the captaincy. Uh Yes. Okay. If that weren't bad enough, captain is for... The overwhelming majority of officers, the absolute limit of how high they can go, as there were never more than 45 officers of field rank, major, lieutenant colonel or colonel in the entire service. And some of those colonelcies were given as sinecures to to naval post captains. Similarly, the higher ranks in the Royal Marines, uh, general, lieutenant general and major general of marines, were all sinecures reserved for naval admirals. So there was no possibility whatsoever of higher rank as a marine officer. Furthermore, marine officers were always subordinate to their naval counterparts. A marine captain was the equivalent of a naval lieutenant and very much subordinate to the ship's captain. Similarly, marine lieutenants were subordinate to all the naval lieutenants aboard and received only a warrant officer's share of any prize money. So they also had much less opportunity to get rich because they were always getting the the lowest amount of prize money. It's probably therefore not surprising that many naval officers tended to look down on marine officers as lesser beings, as unskilled, uncouth martinets or drunkards. This was particularly true of the new breed of gentlemen officers, such as Jane Austen's brothers. This snobbery was sufficiently a problem that the Admiralty actually added a section to the regulations and instructions of 1808, stating that the marine officers are upon all occasions to be treated as well by the captain of the ship as by all other officers and people belonging to her with the decency and regard due to the commissions they bear. So I think it's important, as a number of authors such as Brian Southam have pointed out, and we'll put a link to the details of his book in the show notes, that we should not assume that Jane Austen's negative portrayal of the Marines necessarily reflects the general view of the gentry of her time. 
Her presentation is, in my opinion, partially for dramatic effect, but I also think we should see it as a reflection of the professional prejudices of her naval brothers. So the novel would have one believe that it was generally the case that gentry society as a whole regarded naval officers as a step above marines, and whilst that might be true to the, to the extent that they would recognise the greater opportunities for advancement and wealth afforded by a naval career. The idea that a marine officer would be generally seen as a lesser being than a naval officer of similar rank is not true. For the pop culture adaptations today, I'm mostly going to be concentrating on the Portsmouth scenes, not on the earlier chapters we looked at. The 1983 version with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell, I think they do a really, really good job of just getting that sense of oppression and noise and Fanny's discomfort. I really feel it does such a wonderful job of just capturing that sense of the house in Portsmouth that the book does. Unfortunately, Mr. Price, is he walks in and he's got a ruddy face and his hair's a bit askew and... He's even more of a caricature than he is in the book. Because in the book, he, he looks all right when he's outside. Yeah. It's it's when he's indoors that he seems yeah. so gross. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is indoors where you see him. You could see that he looks debauched from a thousand yards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By contrast, the 1999 version with Francis O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller... They really try to emphasise squalor to an extent that I don't think is there in the book. So there are dirty plates and weevils on the table. You see a dog on the floor with a sleeping child next to it. Everyone is sharing a bedroom. And also in this there are several babies as well. And it's just, it doesn't capture the, the closeness and the noise at all, I didn't feel. And instead it's gone this this direction of squalor. It's like Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing that's different is in this one, Mr. Price, you look at him and you think, yeah, he could have been a handsome young lieutenant of Marines. You could see what it is about him. But also having cast someone who looks younger and not just less physically gross, but he doesn't have the swearing, he doesn't have the drunkenness. Um, so he's actually nicer and everything else is more squalid. Maybe he's meant to seem nicer to make a contrast to Sir Thomas, who's presented as so completely horrible in this version. Oh, right. But yeah, there's just not such, you know, there's the squalor, but the, which makes you go, ugh, but there's not the same sense of noise and crowds. I felt the 1983 version was more true to the book, except I felt that Mr. Price was very overdone. Yes. Now, the last adaptation is the 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson. They don't have Portsmouth. Oh, <laughs> I, I think it's because this was done on a shoestring budget and so they couldn't afford to have Portsmouth. So what they have instead is that Sir Thomas actively says, I am going to punish you for not accepting Henry. So when we go away for three weeks to visit Lady Bertram's mother, who has not previously been mentioned, they are going to leave Fanny behind on her own. So you have this shot of everyone and Pug getting into the carriage and Fanny watching from the window looking rather morose. And then you see her eating a meal alone and you see her walking around a large tree in the grounds alone and then trying to write to Edmund. But seriously, how is it a punishment to leave her alone in Mansfield with the servants to look after her? No Mrs Norris, no Pug. 
<laughs> wow, that would be fantastic, I thought. <laughs> I think they missed a great opportunity to have Benny Price's day off. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I'm assuming it's because they just didn't have the budget. But, yeah, I don't know what they could have done, but I just felt that was monumentally unconvincing. And the last one is the 2014 web series from Mansfield with Love. In this one, it's Fanny's choice to go to Portsmouth. She's basically said, I've got some leave. I'm taking this new job at the Antigua, but before I do, I want to go back and spend some time with my mum and William, who's about to start doing a course at Portsmouth. So they go to Portsmouth, and I think they actually go to Portsmouth. So they're a web series, and they had the budget to go to Portsmouth, which the TV series didn't. In this one, Fanny doesn't have lots and lots of brothers and sisters. William is her only sibling. Her mother has remarried and she's got step-siblings who are much younger, who don't actually appear on screen. You do get Fanny being a little bit down when she says um, there were no signs of affection. Mum seemed a bit pleased to see me and she gave me a hug and asked me how things are. But you don't get that oppressiveness of sound and noise and people. In this one, Susan isn't actually her sister. Susan is a former school friend that she meets up with again. All right. So three completely different approaches to the Portsmouth scene and one radically different by not having it at all. Yeah. But before we finish with pop culture this time, there's another sort of modernisation that I think you wanted to talk about. That's right, yes. This book is Heartsease or The Brother's Wife, which was published in 1854 by the popular Victorian novelist Charlotte M. Young. Who, by the way, you're a huge fan of. Yes, yes. Various readers of Charlotte Young have noticed these echoes over the years. I certainly did. And we'll put references to two publications in the show notes. Mm -hmm. One of the first things one notices is the mention in this book of Antigua and the implications it carried for readers in the 1850s, which it probably didn't so much for readers in the 1800s. That is, that it involved the use of enslaved people. In this book... We have a standard aristocratic family, but we're told that the family's wealth has been enormously increased by the current Lord's marriage to the heiress to a huge West Indian fortune. And it's made clear that the family is aware of the significance of slavery in creating this fortune and is ashamed of this taint. She has obviously responded before Saeed that the mention of Antigua means sugar plantations, which means enslaved people. Mm. The book was, after all, written when the abolitionist movement in the United States was at its height and only a few years before the Civil War began. What I want to talk about here, though, is another of the echoes Charlotte Young has picked up Mary Crawford's two friends, Mrs Fraser and Lady Stornoway, the two friends that Edmund believes have had such a baleful influence on Mary. One of the main characters in this book, Theodora, also has two girlhood friends who drag her in a worldly direction. One of the characters is talking to another and giving this account of the sisters. Their father died just as Georgiana was coming out, leaving very little provision for them, and they were shifted about among fine relations who only wanted to get rid of them, 
and gave them to understand they must marry for a home. And then she goes on to describe Georgiana, who, like Mrs Fraser, has married a rich older man. She says she was very sick and when she recovered, whereas she had always declared for honest independence and poverty, the next thing I heard of her was that she had accepted this miserable money-making old wretch. And the other person says perhaps she liked him. She said, no, indeed, she despises him and does not hide it. She is true, that is the best of her. I cannot help caring for Georgina, poor thing. I hate to see it, her spirits as high as ever and with as little ballast, and yet she looks so fagged. She was brought up to dissipation and does not know where else to turn. So that's the equivalent of Mrs Fraser. The other sister's career is a bit different from Lady Stornoway's, so bits of it could be the same. Mm-hmm. So that's what I basically wanted to say about Mansfield Park and popular culture in the <laughs> 1850s. <laughs> listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, me, Michael, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 40 to 45 of Mansfield Park. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneausten.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.